When I was eight, my great-uncle Jason told me about the tunnels beneath the city. He sat me down in his giant, chintzy flat filled with mail-order ceramic statues and stale cigarette smoke, and he told me that he'd made his fortune below the city streets. He told me that, with a sledgehammer and the right map, you could make your way from any basement in Shoreditch to Westminster Cathedral without seeing daylight or a tube train. Then he made me promise to never, ever try it. And then he told me why. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. down block of flats which was just being gentrified at that point in the late 90s. Half the block had already been sold off to luxury developers and he was one of the few remaining holdouts. He was old enough to remember the city before it was flattened and rebuilt by German bombs, when you could still see every Christopher Wren church spire from the top of the monument. He could recall a time before the Skyward land grab game took the forces of capital high above Canary Wharf, when the endless billionaire plots of the modern East End were a mud and shit strip of no man's land for sailors and the bleeding crust of late Victorian industry. He was too young to serve in World War I personally, but he lost an older brother in the Battle of Basra. I remember a photo of Great Uncle Charles holding a rifle and posing in front of the Persian oil fields, still wearing the wide-brimmed helmets they issued British Imperial soldiers at the start of the war. Growing up working class in the city in the 1920s, Great Uncle Jason had to learn a trade, and that meant joining a livery company. Within the old Roman city walls of what we now call the Square Mile, the ancient craftsmen's guilds known as the livery companies have always kept a heavy hand on the levers of power. I'll go into them in more detail in a later episode, but very briefly, the livery companies control and license much of the labour within the Square Mile. The worshipful company of hackney carriage drivers, for example, regulates taxicabs, and is descended from the fellowship of Master Hackney Coachman, created under instructions from Oliver Cromwell in 1654. To become a full worshipful company requires recognition from the City of London Corporation, the vast and ancient institution which controls the square mile. Although there's an authoritative list of 110 modern worshipful companies, a great number of minor livery companies have come and gone in that time without receiving formal recognition. One of those, and the one which my great-uncle Jason joined way back in 1924, was the Fellowship of Subterraneans. Great-uncle Jason had always been a practical sort. Before the Second World War, before concrete and mathematics allowed construction to move east and skywards, his work had mostly taken him underground. Land within the square mile was at a premium, and clever architects have always gone vertical rather than horizontal. The idea of the super-basement is pretty common now, with endless excavation taking place in Kensington and Hampstead, but it was traditionally the preserve of wealthy investment houses and merchant traders, who needed somewhere to store their vast wealth reserves before they could be traded easily by wire transfer. Many of these investment houses would run tunnels to the vaults of their closest partners to facilitate easy transfers. Security on these tunnels was tight, but usually significantly less tight than the front entrance, since, theoretically, the only way in was through one of the secure entrances at the front. Planning and building these tunnels was the work of the subterraneans. Theirs was a highly specialised form of architecture, often taking place without what we'd now consider the proper permits. Palms would be greased, livery companies informed, aldermen would give the nod, and then a thousand tons of soil would disappear in a convoy of horse-drawn carriages one morning. 
It's said that the master of the company was the only one permitted full access to the maps of all these tunnels, since an enterprising thief could otherwise use them to clear out the vaults of just about every major trading company in the square mile. That is, if they didn't get caught by what they found down there first. Great Uncle Jason lived on the top floor of his block of flats. He always had, as long as I'd been alive. My family would visit him every other weekend to bring all his groceries to him, which seemed strange to me. He was in his 90s, sure, but he was still sprightly enough, still confident enough to keep his flat well maintained and to do various odd jobs around, so he could definitely get outside if he wanted. He'd become the de facto handyman for the whole block. One time I went over and he was up on the roof, 20 stories high, fixing the waterproofing with a blowtorch and a bucket of tar he'd got from somewhere. That day in 1998, my parents had left me with him while they ran some errands. He would often sit for hours telling me stories about old London, often poring over various maps and photographs he kept on a huge yellowing bookshelf next to the TV. I'd found an old photograph of him in a boiler suit with three other men, all smiling down camera with dirty faces. On the back was written, Subterraneans, June 1928. Jason was immediately effusive about it. Those men, he told me, were some of the bravest souls ever to work in this city. What we had to face down would put fear into you, but I shouldn't say any more. I'll give you nightmares. He knew what he was doing. I'd been reading horrible histories books all summer, and all I wanted to hear about was the grisly, the gruesome, the nasty details that my parents would balk at. I immediately pushed for more. From this point forward, I'm paraphrasing. My memory isn't that good. But he started talking about the Fellowship of Subterraneans and what they'd discovered when they built the Allgate Vault Passage. It was designed to run under what's now the recently pedestrianised Allgate Square, between Sir John Cass's primary school and St Botolph's Without Church. On the north and south side of what was, until 2016, a busy intersection, stood two grand investment houses, whose names I'll avoid using to save myself from legal action only one episode in. Tired of sending runners with armed guards back and forth, they hired the subterraneans to construct a long passage between their sub-basement vaults, snaky and visible beneath the oblivious street. To dig through the vault walls, Uncle Jason told me, took the four-man crew a solid week working in shifts. It wasn't just that they were solidly built, although they definitely were. It was that every time they swung the sledgehammer, they would uncover more and more concrete. The plans they'd been provided with showed a foot of reinforcing surrounding the vault, but they got six feet deep into solid concrete before they finally broke through. Jason was on break when they went through, smoking a cigarette in the hallway outside the vault, but he told me he heard the scream despite the reinforced steel door between him and the worksite. By the time he got inside, it was already too late to save his friend. With one great swing of the sledgehammer, he'd broken through the final layer of concrete and fallen into a void of inky, impossible darkness deep below the city. They'd expected to break through into the London clay which most of the city is built on, but instead, he told me, they found... nothing. Beneath one of the busiest intersections, next to the sub-basement of one of the busiest investment houses, with the weight of millions of people pressing down into it, there was, instead of the fertile alluvium they expected, a great empty void which devoured the first of his colleagues without a thought. The next few hours were... confusing. Getting no answer when they called out to him, the three remaining workmen brought as much rope as they could to see if they could recover their fallen colleague, but after lowering a torch one mile down without touching the ground, they realised they'd stumbled onto something bigger than they could handle. The master of their livery company was called in, one Russell Wheeler, but he was just as baffled as they were. They'd widened out the entrance at this point, 
but putting your head through the three-foot gap was like stuffing yourself into a pillowcase which somehow gave you vertigo. It seemed to absorb all light, with no walls or even a ceiling visible in any direction. Of course, they couldn't tell anyone about this. The tunnel itself was strictly hush-hush, a private matter between the subterraneans and the banks, built without the explicit knowledge of the city above. Even the bank itself wanted nothing to do with the details of the project, dismissing it as blue-collar specialty work like mining or waste disposal. They expected a tunnel, and they would raise hell if they got anything else. So, at a loose end for what else to do, they started to build. Luckily for them, the work who fell was just an apprentice. The master of the company paid off his family, telling them he'd been crushed in a cave-in. Jason winced when recalling this, since it was apparently a pretty common fate for the young subterraneans. I got the feeling that he'd had a few close calls of his own. The remaining workers started consulting with other livery companies about, of all things, bridge building, without giving too much away about what they needed. After breaking through the wall at the other bank, another six feet of unexplained concrete, although no fatalities this time, they were able to crossbow a line between the two suspended vaults, and finally get a sense of scale for what they'd stumbled across. The whole thing was... impossible. Above ground, the space between the two vaults was just over a hundred yards. In that impenetrable darkness, the length of steel cable they ran from vault to vault stretched just over half a mile, around eight times larger than it should have been. Once they'd hung lanterns from it, they could just about make out the roof, a full 30 metres above where all logic dictated street level should be. The ceiling was covered in strange white marks and cobblestone-like bumps, rock formations he'd never seen in all his years underground, organic looking but somehow mirroring the layout of the road above, like a twisted, elongated parody of human infrastructure. Strangest of all, Jason said they would occasionally sense something moving above them, more of a feeling than anything else and the other guys on the dig would drive themselves up the wall trying to figure out what it was. Of the remaining three-man work crew, only great-uncle Jason survived the dig. One of them fell in a freak accident while attempting to fix a gas lantern just beyond the entrance, and the second, in Jason's words here, I remember this explicitly, went mad and threw himself into the abyss immediately after getting paid, two weeks into the job. He told me this in such an offhand way that it was sort of upsetting. He'd known them well, worked closely alongside them, and experienced wild things with them, and yet he seemed singularly incurious about their deaths. Their bodies were never recovered, and Jason took to wearing earplugs to drown out the occasional scrabbling sound he heard from below. A few weeks more secretive work and Jason and the livery master had hung a sturdy suspension bridge stretching across the darkness. They put heavy doors on either side and revised the plans for the bank. This tunnel was to be operated by registered subterraneans only, so as to preserve its secret. The bank agreed to the terms, and Jason and Russell became the underground bridge masters, navigating across the vast and impossible gorge night after night with the proceeds whatever great trade had defined that day. An interesting aside, there used to be an east-to-west pedestrian underpass in Aldgate, which has now been converted into the toilets beneath the Port Circum Pavilion. Uncle Jason remembers hearing excavation work take place above them one shift in the 60s, but it somehow never broke into the cavern. One of the vaults is now a cocktail bar, with the old tunnel entrance blocked off and mercifully forgotten. And so the city eats itself once again.
There's something I've been leaving out about my great uncle, and I can't get any further into this story without filling in the blanks. The unavoidable truth is that, for all my positive memories of him, Jason was an unreformed racist. Worse than that, in fact. He marched with most of his black shirts at the Battle of Cable Street in 1936, and continued to support various fascist organisations, financially and otherwise, for his entire life. I only found out most of this history after he disappeared, when we were cleaning out his flat and found a trove of Nazi memorabilia in the bottom of his cabinets. My family knew he hadn't served in World War II, but we didn't realise until we found his release papers that he'd been doing time at Pentonville Prison throughout for being caught attempting to defect to Germany in late September of 1939, barely two weeks after the official declaration of war. We found membership cards for the National Front and the BMP, and leaflets promoting Combat 18, the neo-Nazi terror cell who targeted immigrant communities throughout the 90s. At this point, I might be expected to say that it was hard for me to reconcile the harmless old man I knew with the goose-stepping black shirt who grew up to cheer on nail-bombing fascists, but in retrospect, it really isn't. An awful lot of white Europeans have a fascist somewhere in their lineage, or at the very least, someone who benefited from imperialism to such a degree that the distinction becomes meaningless. The most frightening truth about fascism, the one which makes it so terrifying, is that most fascists are perfectly capable of being warm, personable, and even kind. They just choose not to be. This is why I'll never really buy into the push to debate fascists, to try to reform them gently through discussion. It's like trying to drink an ocean of hatred with a straw, and more importantly, their entire political platform is an incitement to genocide. Save your kindness for the communities they're trying to destroy. His work on the Allgate Tunnel set up Great Uncle Jason for the rest of his life. You see, subterraneans couldn't tell a soul about what they found that day. It was making them far too much money. The strange geometry of the Allgate Cavern gave them access to every vault and tunnel in the city, encased in amber around them. The two survivors of the dig, Great Uncle Jason and the livery master, Russell Wheeler, who I'll return to in later episodes, spent the next 30 years weaving a network of suspended walkways and paths across the city, connecting a shadow network of finance controlled exclusively by the liveryman. For a small fee, you could guarantee the safe passage of money and goods across the city, without having to worry about theft or taxes. After Pentonville, Jason helped return London to the centre of the financial universe on these shadow pathways, and he amassed a fortune in the process, especially as he increasingly automated the work by way of pneumatic tubes and pulley systems, which kept him out of the tunnels proper and protected his share of the profits. By 1970, the subterraneans had been cut to a 15-person operation. By the early 90s, it was just Jason left, and the rise of the internet made his network abruptly obsolete. It no longer mattered whose vault the money was stored in, only whose computer said they owned it. He retired wealthy in 1994, the last of the subterraneans, and bought himself a flat high above the city, as far from that dark place beneath the ground as he could possibly get. Great Uncle Jason disappeared suddenly one day in February 1999, around a year after he told me the story of the Old Gate Cavern. Much of the above story I pieced together from papers in his flat, including a huge, spidering map of the tunnels themselves, which we found laid out across his dining room table after the firefighters broke down the door. As the de facto livery master, he knew every inch of the underground city, but the entrances to the tunnel system had each been crossed out. Both Old Gate entrances, the originals, were closed in 1987. The Bank of England entrance was closed in 1993. The final one to go was in the Woolwich Foot Tunnel in April 1994, two days before he formally retired, which I'm pretty sure only took so long because it's a pain to get to. 
The underground map indicated that it was 20 miles from the Allgate entrance versus the 6 miles above ground. That one was mostly used to move money out of the city to the docks, even then only sporadically. On the map, there was one entrance circled in highlighter, in the basement of a pub just off Bishopsgate. It was marked as closed and unrecoverable in 1993, for reasons which should be obvious to any long-time Londoners. On 24th of April 1993, the Provisional Irish Republican Army detonated a truck bomb near the junction with Wormwood Street, killing a news photographer, injuring 44 people and destroying most of the surrounding buildings. Given the vast caverns which lay underneath, it's a wonder that London didn't cave in entirely under the weight of it, but somehow the entrance must have survived and been built into the basement of the Prince. Two years after he disappeared, I helped clean out his flat with my grandmother. It sat there mostly empty since the door was first broken down, since we first found his big box of Nazi memorabilia. She'd been estranged from him since he went to prison in the 30s, didn't talk about him at all or acknowledge our occasional visits to him. It was that detachment which kept us from knowing about his past until after he'd died. She worked with the church her whole life to build a community, worked with a local Labour party to campaign despite living in a fiercely conservative home county suburb. She taught me about solidarity, and about working class resistance, and about a sense of fierce, unbending kindness, which I wish I could say I live up to in my daily life. Once, I saw her chase a man down the street to return a fiver he'd dropped when he barged past her in a rush. The type of thing I'd consider asshole tax, she would always do her best to fix. We know from looking into his financial records that Uncle Jason died rich, but his money never touched a bank. For fairly understandable reasons, he didn't trust them. But also, given his connection to various hard-right organisations, I suspect he wanted to prevent it from being traced. Not one penny of it was left in his Petticoat Lane flat when he left, which was being repossessed by the company for non-payment of mortgage. Honestly, it was kind of a relief. Whatever dark scene Jason had tapped into for his wealth, it seemed to have reclaimed him in the end, and knowing that we could dispose of all his fascist shit without worrying about the blood money was, at that point, a weight off our shoulders. We ended up having a huge bonfire one Guy Fawkes night, destroying everything apart from his old map of the underground network and the 1928 photo of him and the other subterraneans, before it all went to hell. Earlier this year, I went to the Prince on Wormwood Street. Following instinct, I walked past the toilets in the basement, down the long, spiralling staircase marked staff only, and past the tap room, then the storage room, and then finally into a small concrete space at the bottom. There, I found a sturdy metal door, dead bolted shut, with a huge metal lock on it. The lock was rusted through, but I could make out the seal of the subterraneans on it from my uncle's papers. As I turned to leave, I heard a click. I noticed the lock, heavy and rotted as it was, had somehow opened itself. I paused for a second, then leant down and clamped it firmly shut. Then I walked away. this season of Subterraneans. Episode 2, The Roman City Under the City and how it got pushed downwards. 
Episode 3, The London Underground, Forgotten Tunnels and the Undercity Growing Beneath the Vents. In Episode 4, I explore the super basements of Kensington and Hampstead, see how the wealthy are dealing with hostile excavation. And in Episode 5, I return to the Allgate Tunnel with what I've learned. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.